Good morning again. If you couldn't tell, I'm a blues fan. Blues play. Today, they, the blues are on the cusp of their first ever Stanley Cup championship. And I don't know if you want to call it a divine coincidence, but today's text is on the resurrection. If you know anything about where the blues were on January 3rd, they were dead last in all of hockey. And now they're playing for the Stanley Cup. I think that's funny. Matthew, I don't think that was sacrilegious to make that comparison, but uh, let's get into the text uh, a little bit. So last week, we talked about the burial of Jesus and looked at some of the details there. And really the main undergirding point of all of that was this idea that God's sovereign hand was through it all. Every bit of prophecy that was fulfilled, everything that happened was God moving in ways to make uh, sure that we knew it was him. Um, the end of chapter 27 was Pilate agreeing to send a Roman guard to Jesus' tomb and sealing it to prevent anyone from tampering with it, right? So the religious leaders were still afraid of Jesus' legacy even after they saw him die, and they didn't want his disciples perpetuating a hoax and moving his body, and so they had a Roman guard put in front of it. Um, we saw last week that this was their idea in order to prevent a hoax and yet in God's scheme of things, he did it as an added factor in proving that there wasn't actually a hoax at all and that the resurrection really did take place. If all of those steps were put in place, how could they have stolen the body? They couldn't because it was God's doing. We serve a sovereign God who orchestrates all the details, all the circumstances of many lives, even those who have no regard for Jesus, all in order to achieve his will. All of those things happen. Uh, what a mighty God we serve, right? Before we read our text today, I want to get, I want to get our minds thinking in a certain way. Okay. I want us to think about truth. Truth. Our culture is increasingly intolerant of people who say that there is absolute truth out there especially if you point to the Bible as your source of absolute truth. Our culture um, wants to ridicule that and, in essence, attempts to oppress anyone who would even teach their kids that there are absolute standards of right and wrong, good and bad, or just an overall Christian worldview. Brothers and sisters, if you have not seen or heard this, you will. For many, God is just a matter of opinion, preference, but it's not something that you should build your life around. This is what we're being told. You've heard phrases like this. Well, just whatever feels right for you, you do you. In this worldview, there's no place for absolute truth because it truth is based on your perceived reality. And so if that's the case, think through this with me. If that's the case, if truth is truth only for each individual, then my truth, if it interrupts your happiness, we've got a big problem, don't we? If what the truth is to me bothers you, then something is wrong. Somebody's truth is not right here. 
Now, why do you think we as a people, and I'm lumping myself and all of us in there with this, why do you think we don't like being told that there is ultimate absolute truth? I think it's for this reason. I think if there is absolute truth that is there, that doesn't change on culture or time frame, then we are responsible for listening and obeying that truth when we know it. And that's not fun sometimes, is it? It's not fun. It's not easy to do the right thing. But if I get to pick my own truth, then I make the rules, and boy, I feel an awful lot better about my own reality. Some people say, what's true for you isn't necessarily true for me. That's a a bold statement, but I don't think anyone really believes that. I don't think anybody really believes that. And, and here's how I think I can illustrate that. So if you go to the bank, I'm just assuming that all of you have your money in the bank and not in your mattress. But if you go to the bank and you say, hey, I would like to make a withdrawal. And your teller looks at you and says, no, I, I don't feel like you've got enough money in your account to cover that withdrawal. I'm not going to give you any money today. They just... I don't believe you. I know you're telling me that you have enough money, but I just don't believe you. That would never happen, right? Hopefully that would never happen. Um, Because our banks don't give out money based on how their employees feel, do they? There is a definite amount of money or lack thereof in our bank accounts. And you either do or you don't have the money to cover it. Banks just don't give out money based on how people feel. In the very same way, I would say, we can't believe things or refuse to believe things simply on the basis of how they make us feel. Right? In the context of truth, we need to remember that. We, we don't believe things or, or refuse to believe things just based on how they make us feel. Feelings are involved, but they're not the criteria, the only criteria that's used. I think for the most part, we understand this, most of us. None of us expect to go to Aldi and pay for your groceries just based on how much you feel like you should pay that day. Right? The, te- the, the cashier does not ask you, well, how much would you like to pay today? That's every, everything has a price and those price, those prices add up to what you owe. And yet, man, when it comes to the most, some of the most important things in life, it's just a grab bag of what you can believe and what you should believe and what you're allowed to believe in our culture. There's, there's, there's no firm footing, it would seem, for a lot of people. We discount the concept of truth. It's a good thing that God doesn't govern the world based on human preference or feeling, though, isn't it? Oh, boy, it's a very good thing. If he did that, we would be in quite a mess. Now, let's look at, with the the concept of truth in mind, let's look at Matthew 28, the first 15 verses. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, 
For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Let's pray. Lord, use your word to stir in our hearts a love for truth. Not feelings-based, emotional concept of what is right and wrong, Lord, but what your word declares is right and wrong. Give us grace as we see and need, see our need for this today. In Christ's name, amen. So the beginning of this chapter records this, this event that honestly throughout the centuries and the years has been chipped away at. The truth of this event has been chipped away at for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's the physical resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, we could, we could spend months talking about the implications of the resurrection, of, of what happened, um, of all of the different theories surrounding this sort of a thing. But I, I want to focus on a, a specific aspect of it today. If Jesus really was raised from the dead, if that really did happen, then everything he taught was true and every human being is responsible for obeying it. Okay? If the resurrection of Jesus is true, it is the hallmark event of history and it impacts every single person on the planet. If he really did rise from the dead. But if it was a hoax, this is what the Jewish leaders were trying to pass this off as. If it was just a hoax, then Jesus was just another guy crucified on the cross. Yeah, I mean, maybe he was innocent of what they said, and he just kind of got a raw deal. But if he stayed dead in the grave, he was just like every other guy who was crucified on the cro- on a cross. And the jeers of the crowd would have been true. They said, he can't even save himself. This makes the most important question, I think, in all of history. Did Jesus really rise? Did he really rise from the dead? Now, there are... Numerous theories attempting to explain away Jesus' resurrection. They include cover-ups. They include conspiracy theories. um, Silly explanations like everybody just forgot which tomb he was buried in and they went to the wrong one. Okay? Um, I don't plan on going into all of those today. There's a couple of resources I'll direct you to. You can jot them down if you don't have your notes. Go ahead to the next slide, Abigail. Uh, There's a website called crossexamined.org. And then Lee Strobel's book, I would recommend to you, The Case for Christ. These are some really good resources if you're interested in kind of some of those uh, oppositions to the resurrection. 
Um, these have some really good information. The website, uh, cross-examined, has an article called Reasoning for the Resurrection, and it, it gives and disproves nine theories about it, and it's really solid. I'd encourage you to go find that if you're interested in it. Um, I don't intend to go into all of those aspects of it today. We're going to assume that it's true and talk about what the implications are if that is true. Matthew tells us that two ladies, both with the name Mary, went to see Jesus' tomb. Okay, They had both just been there, right, at the tomb when they laid him in it originally. And, you know, since everybody knows women are better with directions than men are, Surely they went to the right tomb. The one who they loved, who they saw murdered on a cross, they, they, they knew where they were going. That's, that's my point. When they got there to the tomb, they were greeted by some people they expected to see and some that they were not expecting to see, right? They, um, they're not mentioned specifically until verse 4, but the Roman guard was there, remember? Pilate had just ordered that they go there, and it was stationed at the tomb, uh, there's uh, there's questions about how many were there. You know, they talk later on in the chapter. They say, well, the Jewish leaders try to make a, a false reality here. And they say, well, just tell everybody the disciples came and took the body while you were sleeping. Okay, first off, if that happened, all of those Roman guards would be put to death. Because you lose somebody like that on your watch, you're gone. Okay? So that that's, that's not what happened, and that would have been easily disproved. Um, but we're not told how many. I don't know that this is a huge ordeal, but, you know, I would think bare minimum is four. And if you're really concerned about the disciples coming and taking the body, how many disciples were there at this point? Eleven. So you probably want just as many guards outside of the tomb so you could take them on. Um, not only that, but if you remember, when Jesus was arrested in the garden, it was not only the Roman soldiers that came, but a lot of the Jewish guard came as well. Same thing would have happened here. They were, if they were that concerned about a hoax being perpetuated by the disciples, they would have sent their own guys too. So there's anywhere from four to 40 Roman soldiers or soldiers, some Jewish there at the tomb standing guard. Okay. Um, it was Holy Week. Don't forget. And so there were thousands of extra Jews in the city, probably some of them camping out in areas close by who kind of would have seen what was going on. Um, probably every one of those people, all of those extra Jews that were in the city, had heard of Jesus. So if that's the case, Pilate probably would have been more inclined to avoid a riot, which is what he was concerned about, to send more guards than less guards to handle all of this. Um, they expected to find the guards there. The Marys did. That's who they were expecting to find. But neither, neither the women or the soldiers expected to see the visitor from heaven that appeared. An earthquake happened. Then someone with bright, shining garments appeared. And uh, I think it's interesting that the angel was sitting on top of the stone as if to say, this was my doing, not the disciples' doing. Not even the earthquakes doing. The angel did this. The women saw this happen. The soldiers saw this happen. And what does it say about these hardened warriors? They were scared. 
and they were like dead men. I, I think it's funny that the angel spoke differently to the women. Uh, they didn't, the angel didn't speak to the guards, but it says that they were like dead men, and the angel never says, hey, don't, don't be afraid, guys. But he does, the angel does say that to the ladies, doesn't he? He says, hey, don't, don't be afraid. Don't be scared. And this is one of the most incredible and succinct uh, sentences, statements, I think, in all of Scripture about Jesus. The angel says this, He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. That's important. That's really important. Kids, I hope you heard that. That was the answer to one of your questions. He's not here. He has risen, as he said. Do you know, after the initial shock of all of these things happening, do you know what, do you know what these women were probably thinking? the Marys, these precious ladies were probably thinking everything we believed about Jesus is true. It's true. It really happened. He said he was going to rise and he's gone. Not only that, but an angel told them. So though, though the darkness lasted for a few nights, this was the joy that literally came in the morning to these ladies. Jesus really was alive. Man, what excitement what relief, what joy they would have had. But this wasn't just for them, was it? Notice what the angel says next. It says, go quickly and tell the disciples that Jesus is risen from the dead. This leads me to, to under, leads us, I think, to understand this concept that the message of a res- resurrected Savior is not meant to be kept private, brothers and sisters. It's meant to be shared with joy. Christians should be the most joy-filled people on the planet. That's not determined by your circumstances or your health or your bank account. Joy comes from the Lord and none of those other things. We can, in every opportunity, be full of joy. And so I think when, when we understand that we have a resurrected Savior who died for our sin and rose again to prove that it was true... We should be sharing that with joy. It's not meant to be kept private. And so after seeing the empty tomb, and I think inspecting the place where the Jesus' body lay, uh, the, the angel invited them to do that. They were told, then go to immediately share the good news. Right? In a very real way, I think this is the same thing that Christians are supposed to do after we've been saved. Right? You know Jesus is real? Go and tell somebody else. And for some reason, there's a disconnect at that moment. And we're going to talk more about this next week because Jesus, as the resurrected Savior, sends his disciples out with very um, firm commands. Uh, but they were told to go and tell someone, tell the, tell the guys. So they go, they're obeying, and they go back home. And who do they find on the road home? Jesus himself. Man, the one who they watched with tears being taken down from the cross, dead, laid in a tomb, dead, is now alive. He's alive. And he meets them on the road. What does it say that they do? This is, this is special, I think. It says that they took hold of his feet. Now, I've got small kids, and so immediately I start thinking of kids grabbing my legs and me having to walk like this. I don't think that's exactly the way that they grabbed his feet. They took hold of his feet. I think that it was out of love for him. 
Um, I've said this before. The most important thing to do when you see Jesus for who he really is, is not to try to clean yourself up to make yourself more acceptable to him. It's not to mask all of our flaws with this Christian-y kind of language so that people don't know who we really are. It's not even to try and just be a better person. The most appropriate response to a risen Savior is worship. That's what these women were doing. They took hold of His feet because of their love for Him in worship. It was this um, literal fall-on-your-face kind of love that drove them to this. Worship where we kind of forget about the people standing next to us and we just look at God for who He is. That's hard for us. It's difficult. But when we sing, when we pray, when we hear the Word, when we're fellowshipping, that so much of this is a relationship this is, it's not a, a systematic thing where we do this and then God loves us and shows us His glory. And, you know, it's, it's a relationship. It's a two-way kind of a thing. We don't clean ourselves up. We just worship. So I think these ladies are once again setting a wonderful example for us on how to worship a resurrected Savior. They're leading the way in this. Jesus tells them, go, tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee. I'll see them there. And so they go and they do it. Now in the story, the scene shifts to the guards, right? We kind of have this aside and a group of these guards have gone back into the city to report everything that has happened. And here is, I think, the line in the sand where we come back to the truth idea. The religious leaders were told by these guards Everything that had happened. The truth that Jesus had miraculously risen from the dead and an angel had rolled the stone away and he was no longer there. The soldiers told the religious leaders all of these things, that Jesus had risen from the dead. What reason did they have to lie? I already mentioned, losing a prisoner, you take their place. They were looking at the death penalty most likely to come forth with this truth. Why would they lie about this? And so the religious leaders hear it. Now, it would have been pretty easy to disprove this theory, right? That Jesus actually rose from the dead. Okay, well, let's go to the tomb. Let's walk to the tomb and let's see if his body's there or not. Let's see if the stone, the giant stone is rolled away or not. A lot of times these stones were rolled down a hill, down an incline, so that it was easy to close the tomb but not easy to roll it up. So it could have been really easy. Well, let's just go see if the tomb's open or closed. Let's see if the body's there or not. If the body was there, the whole discussion would be over. But these hardened and usually very brave Roman soldiers, they just gave this report of being afraid. But guess what? That idea that Jesus really rose from the dead did not fit the religious leader's narrative. And so they had to do something about it. Instead of submitting to the truth that Jesus really was the Son of God and had really risen from the dead, they chose to rewrite the story and embrace a lie. What a dangerous place to be. And not only that, but they paid other people to to perpetuate the lie and spread it. Wow. Brothers and sisters, I think this illustrates a truth 
that even the most clear and real evidence will not change a hardened heart unless the Spirit does a work in it first. These guys had all the evidence in the world to go and to see. And they chose to embrace a lie instead. We do not have the knowledge of who the Spirit is moving in any more than we know which way the direction of the wind is going to blow. Right? Uh, John, Jesus talks about this in John chapter 3, John chapter 6, verse 63. Spirit is like the wind. We do not know where it blows, and yet it does. Imagine that God would do something without our permission. Wow, what a novel idea. So we don't know, though, where the Spirit is moving, who the Spirit is working in, and so we faithfully present the evidence for everyone and call all men to repent and believe. But we do not control the Spirit of God. We do not do it. Not by our persuasive preaching or teaching not by our very dogmatic, specific doctrinal statements, not by how our church building is decorated or arranged, not by the programs that we offer or the number of members that we have. None of these things, not by you or not by me, control the Spirit of God. This, I believe, should give us comfort, though, because God's ways and God's timings, though different from ours, is always best. It's always right, even if we don't see it in the moment. And so here's, I think, the crux of the matter. And Paul addresses this issue in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. He says, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then Christians are to be pitied more than anyone. Paul is hanging the Christian faith on this event. If this did not happen, then you, brothers and sisters who love Jesus then you are to be pitied most of all. Your life has been a waste, if that is true. Wow. Yikes. If Jesus didn't rise, then our faith is meaningless, and all we have done is played a religious game. But if it's true, but if it's true, if Jesus really did rise from the grave, then Christians are not the ones to be pitied. I think... Conversely, we're also not the ones to be puffed up in pride because it was God who set his affection on us first, not the other way around. Um, the first stanza of Amazing Grace gets this right and helps us understand this concept better. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Um, I was at a wedding in a Catholic church and I heard different lyrics to that song. I don't know if you've heard this. There is the anti-wretch movement. I don't know if it's actually called that, but it's a name I'm giving it to. And they've changed the lyrics to that song. And they say, um, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved and set me free. Because people cannot reconcile the idea of identifying as a wretch. And, and if we're honest with ourselves, we're there with them. I don't, I don't want to admit that I'm a wretch. And yet... I am left to myself. Absolutely. I might try to be good. I might be good in the world's eyes, but if my heart is far from God, that's what I am. I'm a wretch and wretches don't boast in their wretchedness. And yet that's all we have to bring to the salvation experience. We bring our sin. Boy, why would we boast in that? We wouldn't. This is all we have 
to bring our sin. It's the one thing that plagues every human being. But as we learned a couple weeks ago with the curtain, God has broken down the dividing barrier between a holy God and sinful us so that we might be reconciled back to himself. Why? Primarily for the praise of his glory. That's why he's done it. That's why he brings wretches back to himself. And so, brothers and sisters, let me just insert this in here. The days we really feel like a wretch, because there are those days, aren't there, if we're real honest. Maybe we've had one recently. But the days that we really feel wretched, but we know that we've been sealed with the guarantee of the spirit of our salvation, God doesn't see us as a wretch. He sees us as a son or a daughter. That's the story of the cross. That's the story of the resurrection. And evidence of the truth of the resurrection, I I just want to point out, is that the Apostle Paul went from hating Christians, persecuting the church, and actively being engaged in killing them, to being one of its biggest advocates and suffering more physically than any of us probably ever will. Shipwrecked, stoned, snake-bitten, persecuted every which way he went. Paul went from hating God to being God's biggest advocate, so to speak. Only the Spirit of God in a person would would do that. Now, Historical writings outside of even the Christian world give ample evidence. And you can look at this. I know in the Case for Christ, that book that I mentioned, um, Lee Strobel talks about some of these external evidences to the resurrection. Even worldly historical documents make note of this catastrophic, if you will, change, shift in the world in that time, in that way, because of Jesus' resurrection. This set things in motion and altered history. And it alters, altered people's lives. It still does today. Praise the Lord. David Platt says this. Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That doesn't minimize anything else Jesus did especially the cross. However, we can only see the significance of the cross and the rest of Christ's perfect work through the lens of the resurrection. I I would put it this way. The resurrection confirms the promises of the cross, right? Because the cross promised a lot of things. Jesus going to the cross promises a lot of things, things like new life, things like forgiveness of sin, a new heart within us, peace with God, victory over sin and death, and just a myriad of other incredible promises. But without the resurrection, these are laughable promises that fall way short. But with the resurrection, these promises are powerful truths that make up the foundation of the people of God and what we believe. The resurrection is rooted in Christ's love for us. God sent His Son to pay the price for our sin, and the resurrection let us know, lets us know that our hope of salvation is not just a made-up story. It's not just a fanciful myth. Jesus' resurrection validates everything He said, taught, and came to do. Believers, we should rejoice in Jesus' love demonstrated both on the cross and at the resurrection.
where are you when it comes to the truth of the resurrection? Do you believe? That's a pretty simple question. Do you believe? Or have you fallen into the trap of the religious leaders? Are you willing to pass off on and believe a lie because the truth doesn't fit your narrative? We see people do this all the time. You have neighbors that have done this. They've heard the truth of the gospel, and, and yet the truth does not fit their narrative for life. Because their end goal is either to be happy, to have comforts, or, or whatever else people aspire to. And following Jesus doesn't always give you those things. And so that's too difficult. So they've rewritten the narrative, and now God is something else than what he really is. They have chosen to believe a lie. If Jesus really rose and it's really true that the only way to God is through Jesus and by submitting to him, then you and I have a very important decision that we have to make. If these things are true and there's only one way, then we have a decision that's very important. Romans 10.9, it's in your notes, you can jot it down. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is a wonderful text on salvation. Um, And I, I would argue that this is where Christianity is different from every other world religion. Right here. It's because of this. Scripture doesn't give us a list of things to do. To be saved. It doesn't give us a check, a list of check marks to, to, to check off. It doesn't give us a list of rules or rituals to follow. What the Bible gives us is just truth to be believed. Truth to be believed. If you don't believe the truth of the gospel, then the burden of proof is on you to disprove the resurrection. But there's more involved in salvation, I think, than just believing in the resurrection. Now, just so we're clear, there's no work involved on our part. But I think there's confession to be made. Lots of people in our area and other areas of, especially America, um, but areas of the world, I think um, would admit to believing in Jesus. Well, I believe that he exists. Uh, some of them even believe that he did rise from the dead. But I want to think about a situation to illustrate this. Imagine that I'm sitting down with someone up here. I'm interviewing them. I'm asking them some questions. And I I start asking them questions like this. Um, Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? They say, yes. Okay. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus is the only way to be saved? They say, yes. Do you desire to be involved in church? Yeah. Okay, if we stopped right there, we're thinking, man, this this person's got it together. We want this person as a member of our church. But here's the thing. Here's the scary thing. The devil can answer yes to all of those questions. Can he? He believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He believes that Jesus died on the cross and rose again. He believes that Jesus is the only way to be saved. And he certainly wants to be involved in church. He could answer yes to all of those questions. But the one he won't 
affirm. The one he can't affirm is this. Will you repent of your sin and surrender the authority of your life over to Jesus? He won't do it. And this is the point where many people in our culture come up short as well. It's easy to believe in those other things. Because too often, we even in the church urge people to think rightly about Jesus, but only just on an intellectual level. Just know these things, believe this is true about Jesus, and that's just called intellectual assent. Okay? We... We just encourage people to intellectually ascend to learning and knowing right things about Jesus. But we need to learn about God. We need to learn who Jesus is. But information about Jesus alone does not save a person. Head knowledge does not save by itself. I'm afraid that Christians, we too often communicate that all someone needs to do to be saved is just to assent intellectually to Jesus or pray a certain prayer or live a, you know, a pretty good life or get involved in a particular church? How many people calling themselves Christians only really believe half of that Romans 10, 9 verse? They might say they believe in the resurrection and think they're saved simply because they give lip service to Jesus, but their lives are not surrendered to his authority. Is this you? Is your life surrendered to the authority of Jesus? It looks different if it is. Here's another point to be made. It's easier to know information about Jesus than to give yourself completely over to his rule. Because we like to be independent. Make a name for yourself. Carve out your place in history. That's what we do. That's what we're told how to leave a legacy for your family and in this world is to do that. It's we exalt self. This flies in the face of exalting self. Just as John the Baptist said, if Jesus is going to increase, what has to happen to us? We have to decrease. If there's only room for so much and Jesus is filling more of that space, guess how much of me gets pushed out? And the goal is 100% Jesus. I don't know that we'll ever attain that in this life. But that's what he was getting at. More of you, Lord, less of me. But it's easier to know information about Jesus than to give yourself over completely to his rule. So what does it mean, as Romans 9, 10, 9 says, what does it mean then to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? I think it's this. I think it means surrendering control of your life to the absolute and universal authority of Jesus. You've heard it said, actions speak louder than words. Churches are full in America of people who come to church, sing the songs, raise their hands, pray the prayers, and then their lives look 0% different from that point on. And so you can come and intellectually ascend to Jesus on Sunday mornings. You can come and say the right thing and say you believe the right things, but it will play out in your life. It will show whether you have surrendered to his authority in your life or not. What this means is, brothers and sisters, very simply, your life is no longer your own. And that's hard to get. That is hard to grasp. I don't like to think that way. And you don't either. Because 
we have one life to live and everybody around us is telling us to live it for ourselves. You do you. Make yourself happy. That is not the recipe that God gives for happiness and joy. I don't think surrendering to Jesus is a one-time act, though. I, I do believe there's justification uh, available for all those who repent and believe. Um, that is a one-time thing, Scripture points out. But I think the sanctification part of this is a day-to-day, moment-by-moment, sending the old rod to the cross. The desires of my flesh, the things that I want over what God says is right, go to the cross. They are crucified. I'm crucified with Christ. That's, I think, what that means. It's daily happening so that Jesus reigns in me, so that Jesus reigns in you. You constantly deny yourself and take up that cross. It's not about magic words. It's not about a formula or a ritual. It's a change of heart that only the Spirit can bring. Only the Spirit brings it. We say, yes, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin and rose from the grave as my Savior, and now my life belongs to Him as Lord. That's what that means. The resurrection emphatically declares that everything Jesus said and did was true and is true. This is what the resurrection means. If it is true, and when we believe that it is, this means everything Jesus said is true. And it has huge implications in our lives because truth matters. It reminds us that neither death nor disease nor any other thing in all the world has the last word. Not disease, not death. Jesus has the last word because at, at the resurrection, Jesus spoke, didn't he? He spoke by rising from the dead, proving that everything he said was true. And he's going, this is, I think this is either frightening to hear what I'm about to say. It's either frightening or it's very full of comfort. So as you hear it, be real with what it brings up in you. And it's this, if Jesus has the last word, he's going to have the last word for you for all eternity. Does that inspire fear or joy and comfort? If fear, know that the moment that you cry out in repentance and in faith, Jesus hears you and is able to save. And not just able, he will, he's promised to save you. For all those who humble themselves and come before the Lord in faith, he will save. If Christians, if we hear that Jesus has the last word and we're rejoicing in that, because Zechariah talks about this, about how he's singing over us. Man, what a thought that in eternity, that's the heart of God. Singing over us. Parents, we do that to our kids. I've, I've yet to meet a parent who, when their child is actively disobeying, singing songs over them. Right? That's not what usually is going through the mind of a parent when you're disciplining your child. And yet, in eternity, in glory, there's no more of that. We're in perfection with the Father who is singing over us. 
Boy, what a day that'll be. Brothers and sisters, the reality of the cross means that we have access to the Father. But the reality of the resurrection means that it's true. It's real. It happened. I pray that you have been encouraged by this today. And if you want to know more, you can access that information and kind of be more prepared in your thinking about this. But I want us to think through, go back to the beginning, think about truth. I'd encourage you, don't abandon the truth of God and his word, the truth about Jesus, to embrace a lie. It's easier to embrace the lie than it is to live for the truth. So think about your life. That doesn't mean that your life has to be hard in order for you to be doing the right thing. But think about your life. Have you been rewriting the narrative because you didn't like what God says about a sin? Or are you embracing the truth and pleading with God to cleanse you of that sin? Undoubtedly, if you're like me, you have that area. You have those areas where you need a cleansing from the Spirit. Would you pray with me? Let's ask God for that this morning. Father, I think about the, the recesses of my own heart that I constantly try to pull back authority from you on. And I, whether it's I start to think in pride that I can handle it or whether it's just in shame that I don't want you to see that um, part of me, Lord, I, it depends. But either motivation causes me to shortchange the effectiveness of the, re- of the reality of a relationship with you. It affects my re- fellowship with you. And so, Heavenly Father, for my brothers and sisters who've called on the name of Christ and believed, who are there and they're wrestling with these areas where they're embracing a lie because they're not content to see the truth, Lord, I pray that you would free, free them from that this morning. Free me from that this morning in my own heart. And Lord, for those who have maybe only paid lip service to you and don't genuinely know you as their Savior, Lord, I pray that you would move in their hearts today. Lord, we don't cause the Spirit to blow. You do. And so, Spirit, we pray that you would have your way in your people, in these people this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.